know that they're gonna find that that city there you know you have a hunch that maybe those these creatures may be alive you have a hunch of all these other things but you don't expect that to be thrown in there yeah so it keeps you going him and danforth walk through this this labyrinth city with this flat this, this torch only able to see a step or two ahead of them. And I think on a meta level, that's happening as we read this book. So don't be afraid of letting your readers see a step or two ahead of your characters, but don't make that one or two steps turn into 10 or 15 or 20 step. I would say he gets kind of close to that line. And and maybe he even crosses it a little bit in the camp where they're all, oh, this is, you know, the crewmates are mad. It was the wind or something. And we're just like, no, you idiots. But like, that's probably the closest moment where we get to being like, okay, I, I, I already know how it ends. But then you just have to like, keep reading. You're like, oh, wait, no, I don't. <laughs> Seeing the humans there in the scene looking at it like, hmm, how strange. But the readers like, Lenica, I can hear you screaming at the book. You idiots. They're alive. You know, they're alive. Hello. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Lenica and Patrick about the first half of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will hopefully help you develop your powers of suspense. I always like to start these recordings with a quote about writing or reading. This one comes from H.P. Lovecraft, who once wrote, No formal course in fiction writing can equal a close and observant perusal of the stories of Edgar Allan Poe or Ambrose Bierce. Of course, we could swap out our own favorite writers. It doesn't necessarily have to be Poe or Bierce. Those two authors just happened to be favorites of Lovecraft himself. But the general takeaway from this quote, I think, is very, very important. Slightly ironic, given that this course is designed to help one learn how to write fiction. I see my job as the instructor of this course to convince you that reading is the only way to learn how to write, and to model for you the ways of reading like a writer, reading with an eye towards gleaning lessons on how to write your own stories and poems and essays. It's always good to have corroborating evidence from such an accomplished writer like H.P. Lovecraft, And I think he's absolutely right. There's nothing really that this course can tell you. There's no secrets. There's no skills. There's there's no tricks. One just has to find one's favorite authors and devour them, assimilate them, distill all of the lessons that you possibly can from writers that you love. And for more about an author and book that I really love, let's go into that chat with me and Lenica and Patrick about At the Mountains of Madness. Hi, Patrick. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. Oh, and here's Lenica. Hi, Lenica. Hello. I'll just say a couple introductory things. You've heard enough of these recordings now to know how they go. I don't have a strict agenda or plan. I I sent out in that email just a few of the topics we could hit if you want, but it's mostly where you guys want to go. I want want mostly for this recording to be your guys' reactions and praise and discussions of what you know what we think we, we can learn from this book yeah so just to remind you guys of some things maybe some places maybe we could take the conversation we could talk about setting i think lovecraft does a great job describing the place 
I think we can learn a lot from him about setting. Diction, his word choices are constantly surprising, I find. I think maybe we could talk about suspense and how to build suspense. Also, maybe if you want, we could talk about how to make fantastical elements in a story seem believable. I think, you know, speculative fiction, sci-fi, fantasy is a pretty popular genre. And I think one of the one thing that authors of that genre are obligated to do are to make that world, however unreal it is, seem believable and convincing. So we could talk about how Lovecraft does that. Uh, maybe also this like this weird plot structure, like he jumps forward, he'll he's he's at home and he's warning this other team not to go ahead of it, and he keeps leaving stuff out of the story. So we you know we could talk about that if you want, or any other stuff that you guys want to talk about. We could assume maybe that your classmates haven't gotten to the end of the book yet. So I don't know if there are any like dazzling spoilers. I think as you read, wouldn't you two agree that the readers know what's happening way ahead of when the narrator finds out what's happening? So I don't know if spoilers are really a problem, actually. But if you have gotten to the end of the book, and neither of you, by the way, are obligated to have finished the book for this discussion, I emphasize that we would be talking about the first half. So if you haven't got to the end of the book, that's not a problem. But if you do want to allude to stuff that happens in the end, we can do that as long as we're saving some amount of, I don't know, surprise or tension or suspense for the classmates. So if you're loving the book so far, and I hope that you are, what are you loving about it? Oh, I, I love the, the kind of the ride. Like they set it up so well in the beginning. Actually, I kind of have like a like a, a sentence here I kind of wanted to read that kind of like for me was like, oh, goodness, here we go. Okay, great. It was when he was talking about how they had like all the the planes, the shelters, they had everything. And he says, our good luck and efficiency had indeed been almost uncanny. And that word uncanny just, I looked it up because it, it is kind of a, a like a funny word. And I got it on the dictionary. It says a strange or mysterious, especially in an unsettling way. So I was like, oh, goodness. Yeah. This is all going to go downhill from here. It's too good to be true. <laughs> Yeah, so this is, this is wonderful. I, and I want to pick up more about this element of foreshadowing. I guess you could call that foreshadowing that Lovecraft is so good at. But what about you, Lenica? What stands out immediately as the best part of this book? I don't know. I mean, obviously, he's super good at foreshadowing, like you said. And I don't know, one of my favorite parts is kind of something that happens the whole time that this is happening. Because you've got Lake and he's sending the radio messages, right? And Every time he says something about the dogs and I literally wrote in my margins, like I became like even more exasperated as it went on. I was like on page 21, like he says, the dogs are growing uneasy as we work and seem to hate this soapstone. And I said, trust the dogs. Yeah. And then like the next page, additional scarred bones found, but these just may ha wait having trouble with the dogs. And I'm like, the dogs know we can't, take these back to the camp because the dogs will bark for furiously and can't be trusted next to them. And it's like, the dogs know, just pay attention to the dogs. And I was just like, me yelling at them didn't help at all. <laughs> just like, it was like more of a ride for me. Just trust the dogs and you'll be fine, but no. It's, and I want to ask about this. It's because it's a very common trope in horror movies or suspense movies. Like the kids, trust kids and dogs. The kids know and the dogs know. Maybe the most natural follow-up question would be, how isn't this a cliche? I mean, it happens so often in movies. Do you know what I mean? That the dog mm -hmm. is barking at something that no, no human can detect. Did either of you, when you were reading those moments, think, oh, this is such a cliche? Maybe you did. And if you did, you should, you know, just feel free to say so. But if you didn't, even though you recognize that this is a trope that happens a lot, how does Lovecraft 
use this very common element and make make it seem new or make it rescue it from the accusations of it being cliche. Any thoughts about this? Well, I think um, he does this. I think by the creatures themselves, because like in my in my head, I had a movie that that I know yeah. it's called Predator vs Alien. It's a sci fi kind of a deal, and they go uh, to Antarctica. Yeah, I've yeah, seen that movie. yeah, and like I was that's what was in the back of my head this whole time. And I think it was like the these these creatures that he described that they pulled out and the dogs didn't like them. It wasn't just fossils at that point. Like it hints to it being maybe something a little more than what Lake sees. Yeah. And upon what happens with the crewmates and stuff, I think the dogs being they were the, were the way they were added to kind of the mystery of the whole thing. I feel like he could have made it a different way and the dogs could have been a cliche, but because of the way it all kind of added up, it added to it instead of taking yeah. away. I think that's right. What about you, Lenik? Any thoughts about this? He pulls it off because he's almost like self-aware of the cliche, if that makes sense. Okay. Like he can manipulate the cliche because he knows that it's there and he knows that the reader will likely know what's going. And it's almost like the whole point of this book is let the reader know before anyone else knows what's going on. Yeah. And I think that's why he uses the dogs is because yeah. he wants the reader to know. Yeah. I think that's totally spot on. And even the narrator, it's not just, we don't have to read the mind of the author. Even the narrator says from time to time, things like the reader will long have suspected what I just barely and now started to, to realize, you know what I mean? Yeah. So he, he's very, the narrator, not the author, the narrator is very aware that readers will be able to pick up all of these clues and foreshadowings and even the dogs, you know? And I like what you said too, Patrick, about how I think one reason that, yeah, the creatures, it, the dogs in other contexts that might be cliche, but because this whole expedition and this whole world are painted with so much elaborate detail, the creatures, as you say, being just one example of this, we get paragraph long descriptions of their anatomy kind of scientific explanations of what they look like and how they're put together. But also, you know, there are descriptions of, I mean, I guess we could, we're kind of talking about two things at once. We're talking about the way in which Lovecraft helps build suspense, but also in which he helps us suspend our disbelief and makes the unbelievable seem believable. I mean, for the first few pages, we get very long descriptions of like, oh, we brought this, we brought this piece of equipment and that piece of equipment. And you might, and and this newspaper was reporting us, and we sailed on this boat, and east longitude, 175 degrees, and you know he's giving us all of this very real, grounded, actual scientific detail, so that the foundation for any leap into the unknown has all of this believable context. You know what I mean? So that so that by the time we get to a part like the dogs, we're so convinced that this is real, and we're in a real world, and this is actually happening because he's preceded it with all that detail that we don't really blink an eye. If it was just the dogs, if he started with that, and if nothing else was really fleshed out or three-dimensional, I think, yeah, it would be cliche, maybe. Anything else that you just wanted to highlight here at the beginning that you really loved about this book? I think it built, like, excitement for me. Like, I feel like because of all the details that he he added that I, I kind of felt like, the narrator, the narrator was excited, you know, because like, yes, like we we finally got, you know, like any movie like that has to do an expedition with, yeah. like, we got the funding, yes, you yeah. know, like, yeah. like it, I felt, I felt like it was really just kind of an energizing beginning because of because of that. Yeah, but at the same time, like, there are just certain words that are used that you're like, ah, things are not going to go well for them. 
I, you already talked about the one sentence that did that for you. I think the first time I really picked up, like, I obviously I knew something was going to go wrong, but right. um, the first time I felt I noticed it in the story was on, yeah, I think it was either page nine or page 10 where he's saying, just describing different things about the icebergs. And one sentence is, at last we had encountered an outpost of the great unknown content on continent and its cryptic world of frozen death. Cryptic and just frozen death. Like those words used together, it's it's so perfect. Yeah. And I don't know, like just all throughout this book, he's so good at using words that yeah. way. That sentence, like he was talking about like degrees and latitude and longitude and he's like cryptic frozen death and it's like ah yes i know that something is going to happen and it's not going to be fun or or even on the top of page eight he uses the adjective grotesque to describe penguins right so they 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 see the coast of antarctica on the barren shore on the lofty ice barrier in the background myriads of grotesque penguins squawked and flapped their fins i mean he's painting this scene in colors that maybe we wouldn't expect and have never seen before. We would expect it to be like, oh, this is pristine and look at these beautiful animals and aren't they cute? No, he wants to tinge everything with elements of horror and elements of disgust. I love what he does on the top of page seven. Well, maybe I'll start, this is kind of longish paragraph, but I'll start reading on the paragraph on the bottom of page six. Maybe I'll, and I'll ask you, maybe, you know, I'll turn this into a question. I don't want you to feel like you've been put on the spot. So you can just say pass if you don't like this question. But the question is, in the buildup, in the first half of this novel, he's, we're actually throughout the book, he's constantly alluding to other works of art or other works of literature, like Edgar Allan Poe comes up. This painter, Nicholas, Nicholas Rorick comes up. This weird book, The Necronomicon, comes up again and again. So you know, technically this is called an illusion. He's alluding to these other works, these other painters, these other people. So I guess the question would be, why as a writer might you want to do that? Drop these illusions to other artists, other painters, other authors, yeah? What is it, what effect is it having on you, the reader? So I'll just read this paragraph starting on the bottom of page six. The last lap of the voyage was vivid and fancy-stirring. Great barren peaks of mystery looming up constantly against the west as the low northern sun or noon, sorry, the low northern sun of noon or the still lower horizon grazing southern sun of midnight poured its hazy reddish rays over the white snow, bluish ice and water lanes and black bits of exposed granite slope. Through the desolate summits swept raging intermittent gusts of the terrible Antarctic wind. Those cadences sometimes held vague suggestions of a wild, and half-sentient musical piping, with notes extending over a wild range, and which for some subconscious mnemonic reason seemed to me disquieting and even dimly terrible. So I'll pause there, I'll keep going, but just to highlight this wonderful aspect, this, his wonderful ability to talk about a landscape and its psychological effects on him. If you want to do that as a writer, you can't really beat reading him carefully. I'll keep reading him. Something about the scene reminded me of the strange and disturbing Asian paintings of Nicholas Rorick and of the still stranger and more disturbing descriptions of the evilly fabled plateau of Leng, which occur in the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. I was rather sorry later on that I had ever looked into that monstrous book at the college library. So why, why contextualize or drop names like this? What effect is he getting by using these illusions, do you think? 
No, uh, well, I feel like it could be like on the basis of two reasons. One, it, it kind of grounds the story in real life. And another could be like, just in case your reader knows these works, you know, they can draw, it could, it could affect their, their imagination of what they're seeing yeah. or, or could foreshadow something maybe even. Yeah. The, the, those are all great answers. Any thoughts, Seneca? Yeah. I'd say that like, it gives him like almost a sense of authenticity because he's talking about all these fantastical elements, but he's saying, look, these other things talk about them too. And I, I am reliable. Right. Yeah. And some of these are real. So uh, this is for writers out there who are writing the kind of story that half exists in the real world and half and has also fantastical elements, right? Um, one way you can kind of make your convince your readers that this the fantastical elements of your story could happen or are believable or are persuasive, like Patrick said, they highlight the authenticity. And like you, Lenica, have said, they make you as a narrator seem more credible. I mean, Lovecraft is quite sneaky about this because Nicholas Rorick, I think, is an actual painter. The Necronomicon is a totally fictional book that Lovecraft has invented. He wants a book that sounds kind of spooky and weird and mystical. So he, <laughs> he pairs one real thing with one fake thing and the narrator treats them as if they're both real. So he's kind of baby stepping us from reality into unreality, you know, even in these beginning pages. I think that's a very wonderful and subtle and sly technique. I really love that. Wow, that's fun. <laughs> so, I don't know. Do you, I mean, do you have anything else to say about believability? And there's this famous phrase, maybe I'll read you this quote Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a poet, right, 200 years ago describes writing a book of poems with William Wordsworth and half these poems were about poor people and half these poems were weird and about, you know, like the ancient mariner and weird ghosts and demons and journeys. And Coleridge says that it was his job as co-writer of this book. He says, it was agreed that my endeavors should be directed to persons and characters supernatural or at least romantic yet. So as to transfer from our inward nature, a human interest and a semblance of truth sufficient to procure for these shadows of imagination, that willing suspension of disbelief for the moment, which constitutes poetic faith. So he wanted to write about the supernatural, but in a way that could convince readers to suspend their disbelief. You don't want readers reading your book thinking this could never happen. So tell me how Lovecraft, I mean, maybe we've already partly answered this question. The question is, do you have anything else to say about how Lovecraft prevents you as readers from throwing the book across the room and saying, this could never happen. You know, I think he kind of gradually, he, he makes it believable. And then he slowly steps away from the unbelievable, but he, he's given you enough believable, like things that are believable that like, it's okay to step that far because he's already, he already has a really firm foundation and he's, yeah. and it, and it, and you can stick with it because it's like, okay, this is, it's just adding to the plot rather than it's just like we mentioned earlier with the dogs. He's just kind of throwing it in, you know, he's not, he's not doing that. It's very well thought wants to go about. I think like I've always heard when you're writing something, be aware of how much of a learning curve you're going to have for your readers going into it. And I think he was very aware that he was going to have a steep learning curve where his readers would have a very high likelihood of just chucking the book across the room and being like, I no, this does not work. Yeah. I think he does that just like throwing in a little bit at a time where he's, you know, he's just referencing, you know, this creepy book or 
um, you know, these little piping sounds in right. in the wind. And like it's giving the reader like a sense that it's like, okay, yeah, I I I see where you're going. I get that this isn't just gonna be, you know, like some hope-filled story about right. going to the Antarctic and doing fun stuff, <laughs> frozen wasteland. It's it's just very subtle, I think, what he does in the beginning. I would add also, those are great answers. I would also add that he makes the writing so pleasurable that you wouldn't want to chuck this book across the room. Even if you can kind of see the ending coming a mile away, or you get to this, you you get to the full on, like, wait a minute, this isn't really a spoiler. There's these weird, like vegetable animal creatures that come from outer space and they had set up this ancient civilization. You might think, oh, that's so ridiculous. That's so stupid. But he makes the writing so beautiful. Just go to page 29. I'll show you an example of what I mean. So there are one way to prevent writers, sorry, one way to prevent readers from throwing your book across the room in disbelief is to make the writing pleasurable and beautiful. Look at that paragraph that starts the effect of that Cyclopean city. And this is just one representative paragraph. There are many, I mean, most of the writing is this beautiful. The effect was that of a Cyclopean Cyclopean city of no architecture known to man or to human imagination, with vast aggregations of night-black masonry embodying monstrous perversions of geometrical laws and attaining the most grotesque extremes of sinister bizarrery. There were truncated cones, sometimes terraced or fluted, surmounted by tall cylindrical shafts here and there, bulbously enlarged and often capped with tiers of thinnish scallop discs and strange beetling table-like construction suggesting piles of multitudinous rectangular slabs or circular plates of five-pointed stars with each one overlapping the one beneath. So very a firework of vocabulary and weird diction. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He just, make, he, he just get, makes the writing so savorable in the mouth. I think that's also, we could add that to the list of something that keeps readers reading. Tell me what your thoughts are about how he structures the narrative. Why is a writer would you choose what he chooses, which is to have a big chunk of the first part of the story told through these, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Told through these messages from Lake back to the camp. Why does he use that technique? Lake is out there discovering these things and sending these messages back through a telegraph or something. Why, why do that in your story? Why not just send your protagonist or your narrator right to the scene right away and have him be... Why isn't this told through Lake's perspective, you know? Well, I think it adds to the the suspense of it, you know, adds to the mystery because like he's not there, he's only getting what's happening, and then the communication shuts down. And it's like, okay, he just found these weird, crazy things in the ground. Now communication's cut off. Like it's kind of like, oh goodness. And the dogs are going nuts. Yeah. So we all know something happened, but we all want to know what happened. So we want to go to him on this journey. Yeah. I think that's totally right. Like suspense. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert of suspense, but as a consumer of suspense, as an enjoyer of suspense, I can say that it probably is evoked mostly by withholding, you know, gaps, distance, secrets. So by putting the information far away with Lake and not in front of the narrator, that's one way that he builds suspense. The narrator is as in the dark as we are and is kind of groping towards these telegraphic messages in the same way that we want more and more information. 
And they come in so slowly and wonderfully. Like, <laughs> then there's that one at the very bottom of page 19, which I really love. 11.30 p.m. Attention, Dyer, Pavity, Douglas. Matter of highest, I might say transcendent importance. Arkham must relate to Kingsport Head Station at once. Strange barrel growth in the Archean thing that left prints in rocks, right? So there's also, I mean, there's also something about the curtailed language of those telegraphs that makes them seem more ominous, don't you think? They're not really in full sentences, lots of sentence fragments because it's a telegraph. Don't you think that, this is now a leading question, don't you think that that adds to their ominousness, their sense of mystery? I mean, yes. <laughs> yes, good, good. You got the hint, yeah. <laughs> I would say that kind of just going back to your earlier question about why isn't, I don't know, our narrator the one who's discovering everything is it, it almost gives him like a sense of credibility. Cause like he was skeptical of that whole okay. mission because always when you're like watching a horror movie or reading a book, you don't want them to go into the basement where you saw the thing go. And then they do. And you're just like, Oh, you idiot. And you no longer trust that person. You're just like, you're just going to die now. But because he stays back and he, he almost, he thinks about vetoing that trip. He's like, okay, I, I think I can trust you. I can stick with you. You seem like a smart person. And it almost gives you some love for Lake because he's so excited. Like you can feel his excitement even in those, mm. you know, suspenseful short little sentences that he's sending. And you're just like, oh, okay. No, he's excited. He's happy. He's, he's doing something fun. Even though like we know that it's not going to end well for him. Mm-hmm. You know, we just we kind of like him for the short little time that he's he's on the scene, and then when he's referred to as poor Lake yeah. later on in the story, we we actually feel that, and we're like, yeah, poor Lake, poor him. That's great. That's great. So it helps characterize other people in the story. What we've said so far is really important, I think. So to summarize, how do you write a story about the otherworldly that is believable? We've said several, I think, important things. Ground the unbelievable aspects in a context of immensely elaborated real details. Talk about the equipment that you're taking. Talk about long longitudes and latitudes, right? Spare no expense for establishing a basis of reality. Allude to other things and maybe sneak in a few that aren't real. Lenica, what you just said was really important too. Make your narrator maybe one of the skeptics. That's important because then, because we, we side with the narrator. Because it's like, if he doesn't believe this, I don't. But if he starts to believe it, then maybe I should too. That's a really important thing as well. What about, so I want to go back to this idea of foreshadowing. And the question I have about foreshadowing and the dogs and this weird, it, it's related to this weird kind of structure that he uses to tell his story. He doesn't say, he doesn't tell the story from beginning to end day one, day two, day three. He starts at the end, right? So the first paragraph of the story happens, they're already at home. And he says, I am forced into speech because men of science have refused to follow my advice without knowing why. So there's this other expedition that's going to go to the Antarctic and he didn't want to have to speak out, but is going to in order to stop that second expedition. So he is already at home. He already knows what's happening. And he's constantly jumping into his present tense. Why do that? Why constantly jump into your present tense? Why not just tell the story day one, day two, day three, day four, day five? Because you you might think that jumping back and forth between your past and your present is going to make things overcomplicated, you know? But what is it? What is it adding? What is it? What effect is it achieving? Do you think? Kind of just thinking about it, I feel like it helps the reader realize that there's a story to be told. 
there being the narrator, somebody that is kind of a survivor of the situation, you might say, yeah. of people that have, have, have died and, and he wants to share this with people so they don't run into the same situation he ran into, which for me is kind of like, well, that situation or those whatever happened to them is still there in the mountain of madness. Like it never went away. Yeah. And he doesn't want them to run into the, into the same situation he ran into. So it gives the story a reason for existing, you know, otherwise we might ask, why is he telling us this? Who is he speaking to? It gives this tale a kind of more concrete audience, which might add to its believability, might help increase its believability because he's being forced out of speech to stop something in the real world from happening. As opposed to just, oh, chapter one, we set sail on October the 2nd, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Any other mm-hmm. thoughts about this? I'd say that, like, like he doesn't just mention it once. Like, no. he says it multiple times. And it's almost like he's reaffirming for himself. Like, we're getting, like, I was surprised, like, how much we got of their narrator's character just from the pages and everything. He's he's almost reaffirming to himself that this is what he needs to do. The story is so terrible yeah. that he has to keep convincing himself as he's telling it. And he even says, you know, there are times I wish I could just hint at something rather than saying it outright. Right. And I don't know. It's just like, it's so, I don't know. It's fun, I guess, <laughs> to read something like that because you're relating to him. Like he feels more like a real person. Yeah, He's like you get a sense for who he is now and him looking back on who he was then. And you're just like, I, I see where you're coming from and, and I get it. That's wonderful. So it could add to characterization. We haven't talked about characterization, but that's probably the main vehicle that this novel uses to characterize the speaker. This, the difference between the past him and the present him. present him. The past him is kind of naive, curious, skeptical, you know, brave, I guess, in a sense. The present him is much more shocked, jaded. How would you describe that difference? Significant enough that we want to know what happened. Very good. That's very good. That's a very good answer. So even those opening two pages, I have to admit that I've read this novel a lot of times and and um, I love it to death. It's a little bit of a clunker of an opening paragraph. Is that okay to say? It's a little bit... Yeah. It's a little bit, I don't know, maybe I should read it and to kind of explain what I meant, but I, I'm worried that your wonderful comment, Lenica, will be lost. Let me just underscore it before I read that opening paragraph. We get a sense at the beginning of the story, just from that first few pages, that something, some dramatic change has happened in this person, and that instantly will make us want to keep reading. We couldn't maybe articulate what the change is. We certainly don't know what caused the change. But just the sense that there is a change. I am not the same person I was is the job of these opening few pages. I am not the same person that I used to be. So if you can give your readers that kind of sense in your first chapter or your first few paragraphs of your story, this will go a long way, just as Lenica says, like, oh, I need to know what happened to you. Why do I think this opening paragraph is is a little bit of a clunker? I am forced into speech because men of science have refused to follow my advice without knowing why. It is altogether against my will that I tell my reasons for opposing this contemplated invasion of the Antarctic with its vast fossil hunt and its wholesale boring and melting of the ancient ice cap. And I am the more reluctant because my warning may be in vain. Doubt of the real facts, as I must reveal them, is inevitable. Yet if I suppressed 
what will seem extravagant and incredible, there would be nothing left. The hitherto withheld photographs, both ordinary and aerial, will count in my favor, for they are damnably vivid and graphic. Still, they will be doubted because of the great length to which clever fakery can be carried. The ink drawings, of course, we jeered at as obvious impostures, notwithstanding a strangeness of technique which art experts ought to remark and puzzle over. Now, obviously, this opening paragraph has a lot going for it. What's the purpose, do you guys think, of mentioning those photographs that have been suppressed and those strange drawings? Why put those in the first paragraph? I think those are good good things to put into the first paragraph. They're serving a purpose, right? I feel like they are. Um, there's kind of another another little phrase like in the book that I think kind of helps us understand a little bit why, too. And it's like when he talks about, it's on page 32, when he says, every incident of that four and a half hour flight is burned to my recollection because of its crucial position in my life yeah so like i mean i'm sure he probably did some things he wasn't proud of too because i mean like if if i if i remember correctly like after lake died they still like had continued the expedition yeah and i mean i feel like a lot of people would have you know okay we need to stop because like a whole bunch of people are have just died but yet they still continue yeah, no, that's great. So that moment is like these moments in the first paragraph because they both announce certain mysteries that we want solved and will therefore keep reading to solve them. This moment was a hinge moment in my life, says the narrator. Oh, I have to keep reading to find out why. Or we had kept certain photographs secret and the reader will think, oh, I have to, like photographs of what? You know, how bad could they have been? So I want to keep reading. I just think, oh dear, when I read this first paragraph and maybe, I don't know, I'll end up cutting this out of the podcast because maybe it's stupid, but maybe it's not. I don't know. It's kind of wordy, isn't it? Neither of you felt this way. If neither of you felt this way, I, I will, you know, bow out as the lone weirdo. Oh no, I'm with you. I think it's wordy. I think they sell it. He's the narrator is a scientist. <laughs> okay. So this is good. Like there might be justification for this kind of verbiage. I love the detail of the photographs. I love the detail of these weird ink drawings that will be jeered at as imposters, but the sentences are too long sometimes in this, in this opening. I think it's definitely like, I don't know. It's more interesting once you've read the book to read that opening paragraph because in the beginning, it's just kind of like, Oh, I need to make it through all of these sentences. I, I need to make it through all of this, you know, go down the pages and everything until things start getting actually interesting. If you get what I'm saying. I totally get it. I mean, if I could point to an exact example of what I mean by too wordy, like the hitherto withheld photographs, both ordinary and aerial, I wonder if we need that, will count in my favor for they are damnably vivid and graphic. Still, they will be doubted because of the great lengths to which clever fakery can be carried. I don't know. Do we need that? The ink drawings, of course, will be jeered at as obvious impostors, notwithstanding a strangeness of technique, which art experts ought to remark and puzzle over. So he often uses two verbs when one will do. He often uses two or three adjectives when one will do. But I forgive him instantly because of how wonderful he is. I think his gift this kind of like wordiness, he has a tendency to towards wordiness. And I think it comes into its own when he gets to Antarctica and talks about the scene and talks about the setting and describes the place and describes the the weird musical piping and these grotesque penguins and the weird kind of mirages that they think they see. All of those extra verbs and extra adjectives, I couldn't love more in their proper place, you know? But I think just in terms of normal old exposition, I just kind of want him to get on with it already. 
was a rare moment of complaint for me about an author who I really, really love. Just let mm. the bodies hit the floor already. Yeah, well, what do you mean? I mean, I think I know what you mean, but Lenica, what do you mean? Get to the part where we're actually reading the story for, you know, let let the, the creepy things start killing people so we can start, you know, seeing that on screen. I don't know. I mean, enjoying the killing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, no, there is a balance. I mean, we've we've all praised the slow buildup. So I don't think that you're saying that you don't appreciate the slow buildup, but no. <laughs> there's, a, there's a balance to be met between slow buildup and, yeah, getting to the slow buildup already. Where's the first? I would love to hear this answer from both of you. What's the first part in this book where you either literally or metaphorically sat up in your chair and thought, oh, I'm totally in right now? It's actually it's actually the paragraph that you already read earlier. And I, I've, it's come to my attention that my page numbers are slightly different than yours. Oh, sorry. Okay. Well, yeah, well, the, the readers <laughs> will have to, I mean, the listeners have to catch up. What paragraph yeah. did I read before? Uh, so I think you said it was on page six and it was kind of... It, I don't know, for me, it's in the middle of the page, but through the desolate summit swept raging intermittent gusts of the terrible Antarctic wind, whose cadences sometimes held vague suggestions of a wild and half-sentient musical piping with notes extending over a wide range and which for some subconscious mnemonic reason seemed to me disquieting and even dimly terrible. Yeah. So it's like, if you heard some sort of, I don't know, tinkling in the wind, I feel like you'd be like, oh, it's it's pretty, it's fancy. But he's like, no, it's it's terrible. Yeah. And, you know, it's wild and half sentient and I hate it. Don't do not do that. And I was like, oh, okay. That's not what I would have used to describe, Good. you know, this fanciful little tinkling on the wind. So he's defying your expectations. Yes. Yeah. And I would also add, I mean, I'm, I don't want to pretend to read your mind, but just evoking that tactile that sensory experience in a way that's very compelling like we feel like we're there hearing it with him which is why i love all of the adjectives and verbs when when he's talking about a physical place or a physical event what about you patrick when did you begin to take note of this book as a book that you were going to love i'm trying to find the page i'm not i'm having a hard time but it's when they struck the cave because everything, every story, every <laughs> movie, when they strike the cave is when it yeah. all goes downhill. And I think it's when they start discussing like what's in the cave and they start saying Precambrian, Jurassic, you know, it's kind of like, wow, what are they unearthing? What are they going, what are they about to release if there is anything to release? You know, like right. what is where that is? I know they struck the cave on page 19, but... Of course, I think my page is a little different than yours because mine's the Kindle read. And they start they start finding fossils that don't belong there. Yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting detail. Yeah. Very good. So the last moment that I'm fascinated by, especially in this first half, again, it's, it's, a, it's a question relating to this idea of how to, because there's a difference between, I think consumers of books and movies know this, but maybe don't know it with the front of their brains until they start to tell stories of their own. But, you know, there's a difference between story and plot, right? So help me out, you guys, describing this difference, because I think it's an important one. Let's come up with an example of story and plot. And we, we a certain touchstone texts or films have developed over the course of these recordings, like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Star Wars, simply because they're reliably known by everybody. So I don't mean to keep beating these same drums, but 
what is the first event of the story? Not the, not the books, not the movie, not the first scene. I mean, where does that story actually begin? If a better example comes to mind, please use this better example. I mean, maybe Star Wars is a better example. Yeah, maybe Star Wars would be better for me. <laughs> where does Star Wars, where does the story, where does, where does that story, what is the first thing in the story? It's got to be the birth of Anakin Skywalker, who's like this weird super Jedi, or are there more important things that happened before? I feel like the story can start sooner than the story starts. I don't know. It feels like we're talking about a difference between the first line on the page and the the inciting moment where now the story has has a purpose. Like now it's not just just words on a page. Now there's conflict and there's interest and there's there's a reason to be reading it. Yeah. I, I don't know if I can point to one moment in The Lord of the Rings because I, I don't know. I studied that book in depth for a while but it's almost like you want to say it's when frodo gets the ring but it's also not because right then only his only purpose is just to get to ring the ring to rivendell yeah but it's in the council of elrond when he decides no i'll take the ring all the way there and i feel like that's when the story actually begins there's a whole bunch of you know stuff that happens before that like and a lot of it is entertaining to read. And there's almost like, it's like a little tiny story where he, he first gets the, the ring and then, and then there's why we read the rest of it. Yeah. By story, I just mean the sequence of events that ends up being told somehow in the novel. I think that the first sequence of the first event in Lord of the Rings is Sauron makes a ring. Yes. That's event. That's event. Number one. Saur- Sauron wakes <laughs> up, drinks his OJ, makes a ring. <laughs> that's, event, that's event number one for sure there's no story before then it doesn't matter when sauron was born who created sauron none of that matters you know i mean if you're like a hardcore fan you can maybe go read other books and find out but that is the first event in the chronology of the story called lord of the rings but it's not where tolkien wants to start telling the story so there's yes. a difference between story and plot tolkien starts telling the story oh this ring ended up with this guy named bilbo baggins in the shire that's how the book opens and we have to get this ring back. So that's the first ingredient. That's the first event in the plot. So now I hope the, the distinction that I've been trying to make between plot and story is clearer. So story will influence plot, but they're not quite the same in this way, if this makes sense. So Lovecraft, back to Lovecraft, um, knows that there's a difference between story and plot. The story, the story goes like this, right? Event A, event B, event C, event D, event E, event F. That's the story. But the plot, the way you structure the plot of a book or a movie or a screenplay, whatever you're writing, you might start with event D and then go to event B and then go to event R and then go to event A. Do you know what I mean? Or you might just start with event R and then go back to event A and then event B and then event C. So Lovecraft is starting not with event A. He's already home. And he's saying, oh, another expedition is planning on going to the Antarctic. So he's starting with event W. He's like, oh yeah, okay. Then then he goes back to the the beginning of the story. We went on the expedition. That's event A, event B, event C. He dug up these things. And then there's this wonderful weird jump. The plane, me and Danforth took a plane over the mountains to find Lake. I'm now talking about in my edition, this is page 34, 32, 33, 34. We took a plane. We sailed around. We we, we flew around a bit. We came back. We... uh, told everybody back at our base camp that they were dead. And then we went home. And since our return, so I'm now at the very end of chapter three. 
Since our return, we have all constantly worked to discourage Antarctic exploration. Like, wait, the story is over? You're home? He's, he's, he's now back at like event, I don't know, R or S of the story. Do you know what I mean? He's left out this whole, what happened when you landed the plane on the other side of the mountains? And then he says, it will be hard work deterring others from the great white south. And some of our efforts may directly harm our cause by drawing inquiring notice. But, but um, later on in that paragraph, but now the Stark Weather Moore Party is organizing and with a thoroughness far beyond anything our outfit attempted. If not dissuaded, they will get to the innermost nucleus of the Antarctic and melt and bore so they bring up that which may end the world as we know. So I must break through all reticence at last, even about the ultimate nameless thing beyond the mountains of madness. So he starts at the end, jumps ahead, then he goes back to the end, leaving this weird gap. What did they find there? Why do this? Back and forth and back and forth. I don't have a, I'm not fishing for one particular answer. I mean, the, the question is like, what effect as a reader, did you get to this part and think, wait, what? Did it make you confused? Did it make you stumble? Did it make you more interested? Yeah, I have, I actually wrote in my book at this place, I wrote, now we get to the truth okay. because it's almost like he had to fill us in on everything. He had already told the press and the public and everything. So we're like, okay, now we're caught up to their level. And, and now we get to see what we get the truth. Now we get what's more. So I felt like it, it made me more intrigued to yeah. see, you know, well, what, what is beyond the mountains of madness? That's great. Like, There's this wonderful effect of like you being let in on a secret, like, okay, first I'll tell you what the public knows, but you're special and I'm going to let you in on the real story. You know, we feel a little bit privileged or we get to eavesdrop into the real deal. So he's peeling away like the fake layers telling us these are fake layers. I think uh, that's pretty right on spot on. Cause like it definitely makes you feel you know, like there's something to know that not everybody knows and there's a reason for it. And you get, you get to know the reason. So you're kind of special. Yeah. It makes you feel special. So yeah. put on your list of how to be a great writer, make your reader feel special, let them eavesdrop, whisper secrets to them, give them the inside scoop. I mean, we're kind of smirking as we say this, but don't we think this is true? This is a true good way to get readers continuing through your book. Um, I have a kind of another example of that. Great. Um, and for me, it's just like kind of right in the very beginning of chapter four. So he's talking more about like what they really found. And there's one line. Yeah, it's the fourth paragraph. And it says, the then missing Gedney was in no way responsible for the loathsome horrors we found. Mm. And I, I love that sentence because in everything else, the, the men that are there are thinking maybe Gedney did this. Yeah. And so we know as the reader, he's in no way responsible. Right. We've already been let in on that secret and we're just waiting for the moment when they catch up to us and they see he is in no way responsible. So it's not... That's exactly right. It's not necessarily what readers find out, but how and when they find it out, you know, because by the time they get to that medical tent or whatever, and they see, first of all, there's no alien bodies or there's like one mangled one, but then they find this probably the most graphic detail in the book. They find weirdly dissected human and dog parts. Remember this? Mm -hmm. And in the present moment of this happening, the people are like, oh, we had no idea what caused this, but readers know, you know. <laughs> they find these, they find these two of these, these, these burial mounds, five burial mounds, 
with these like star-shaped, you know, markers. And the people there in the scene, the humans there in the scene looking at it like, hmm, how strange, you know? But the readers like, Lenica, I can hear you screaming at the book, like, you idiots, they're alive, you know, they're alive. So it's not really like, as readers, we're way ahead of the, the narrator and the protagonist. So it's not necessarily what we find out, but it's in the slow, tantalizing, and it's in the pleasure we get from knowing before the characters know. I mean, this you know, good old-fashioned dramatic irony. Isn't there a pleasure in knowing things before the characters know them and being slightly two steps ahead of them? It's flattering, yeah. I mean, can I, this is the last question maybe because we have to go, but it's flattering and it's pleasurable to be a little step or two ahead of the people in the scene. But couldn't this go wrong? What are the risks? I mean, there is such a thing as being too far ahead and seeing the end coming in a bad way, isn't there? So can you help me work out the balance or how do you strike this balance when you're telling your own stories? I was actually going to say that um, because you don't, like you said, you don't want to go too far ahead till they can like predict it and then it's boring and they don't want to read it anymore. Yeah. I think the trick of doing that is kind of what you said, like only two or three steps ahead, you know, like not, like not all the way, like you can guess the ending from the beginning of the book, you know, right. It's the adventure of getting there and you're only getting a little bit here and there just to know enough to keep you going. For instance, when they find like that city, you know, it's like, you don't know that they're going to find that, that city there, you know, like you have a hunch that maybe those, maybe these, these creatures may be alive or you have a hunch of all these other things, but you don't expect that to be thrown in there. Yeah. So it keeps you going. Nor do you expect now this will, I guess, spoil, (laughs) but there are not just the creatures that they find that come alive. There are other much more hideous, much more monstrous creatures that they find in the city that actually the original creatures are in themselves afraid of. But yeah, it's, I mean, to use the metaphor of the flashlight, like him and Danforth walk through this, this labyrinth city with this, flat, this, this torch, only able to see a step or two ahead of them. And I think on a meta level, that's happening as we read this book. So don't be afraid of letting your readers see a step or two ahead of your characters, but don't make that one or two steps turn into 10 or 15 or 20 steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say he gets kind of close to that line. And and maybe he even crosses it a little bit in the camp where they're all just like incomplete, like, oh, this is, you know, the crewmates are mad. It was the wind or something. And we're just like, no, you idiots. But like, that's probably the closest moment where we get to being like, okay, I, I, I already know how it ends. But then you just have to like keep reading. You're like, oh, wait, no, I don't. (laughs) I wonder if that's only because you're reading a book. If you were there and you had dug these things up, you would, I mean, there's no way, you know, you, you're primed because you're reading a book that's kind of like a supernatural slash horror book that's labeled as this. So you're kind of expecting this. But imagine you're there in the camp. You've dug these things up. They're just fossils. They're not going to come alive. I mean, the thought wouldn't ever have ever entered your mind. You know what I mean? So, okay. Any last words, comments, questions about this? No. Thank you both for a great chat. Um, enjoy the end. I'm, All right. Thank you both good. so much. Have mm-hmm. a good day. You too. Cool. Bye. So I wanted to design a writing prompt that would help you start thinking about ways in which you can make your own stories and novels more suspenseful. Lovecraft does a great job with holding certain elements of the story and constructing a plot that gradually builds more and more suspense. He does this in several ways. 
One way is by refusing to tell us the sequence of events in the order they happened, but to instead have the narrator at some moments jump forward and thereby leave very ominous and mysterious gaps in his telling. So I'm thinking, for example, about what happens on page 32 and 33 and 34. I'll just give you a couple quick examples of this. The narrator is talking about flying away in the plane, and he says this. On our return at 1 a.m., Danforth was close to hysterics, but kept an admirably stiff upper lip. It took no persuasion to make him promise not to show our sketches and the other things we brought away in our pockets, not to say anything more to the others than what we had agreed to relay outside and to hide our camera films for private development later on, so that part of my present story will be as new to Pabity, McTeague, Ropes, Sherman, and the rest as it will be to the world in general. Indeed, Danforth is closer-mouthed than I, for he saw, or thinks he saw, one thing he will not tell even me. That's just one example of something that Lovecraft does pretty often in the first half of this novella. It's wonderful details here where the narrator says that they've taken sketches, they've taken photographs of certain objects, but have agreed to hide them from the rest of their team. So not only do the rest of their team never find out what these are photographs of or sketches of, but we don't either. So that's one very conspicuous gap in the story that Lovecraft calls attention to by not describing it. It's this very wonderful technique. And then this absolute wonderful, I guess you could call it a mini kind of cliffhanger here at the end of this paragraph. There are things that happened on this expedition that not even the narrator knows. So he's hinting at mysteries that he knows about, but refuses to tell his colleagues and refuses to tell us. He's also hinting at mysteries that his colleagues maybe know, but he doesn't have access to. So he's constantly planting as he tells the story gaps in the narrative. And these gaps, of course, withhold information, they jump forward, and they draw attention to what's being left out of the story, making us as readers extra anxious to keep reading so that those gaps can be filled. So for this writing prompt, I want you to try something similar. I want you to write something in first-person narration in which a person is alluding to events in the past, but keeps jumping forward, omitting to tell you the most interesting or disturbing details and thereby inviting your imagination to supply those details and to make readers want to keep reading. So the narrator can keep jumping forward, or the narrator can allude to certain objects or secrets or mysteries that he or she clearly knows about but is refusing to tell you yet, implying instead that there's a better time later on in the story to reveal these things. So to continue the theme of horror and suspense, and since this recording is being made in the month of October, I thought I would read one of my favorite horror-esque poems. This is by Emily Dickinson, who we'll be reading in a few weeks. This is one of my favorite poems by her. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. Far safer of a midnight meeting external ghost than an interior confronting that wider host. Far safer through an abbey gallop the stones a chase than moonless one's own self encounter in lonesome place. Our self behind our self concealed should startle most. Assassin hid in our apartment, be horrors least. 
The prudent carries a revolver. He bolts the door, or looking a superior spectre more near. So that's it for today. The next recording will be a discussion of the conclusion of this book. That chat will be, I think, with me and Ben and Melissa. In the meantime, keep writing, keep reading, try some of these prompts, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>